It's time for another edition of Your Home Discovery, broadcast nationally on AM and FM radio stations, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and more, plus easily found on most social media channels. Podcast available at yourhomediscovery.com. Your Home Discovery, keeping everything around your home sweet home looking great. Now, here's your host, Charlie Campbell. Welcome into this week's edition of Your Home Discovery. I am Charlie Campbell. Charlie at yourhomediscovery.com is the easiest way for you to get in contact with the program. If you have a thought, a topic, a question about your home, please shoot us an email, charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. Another way to reach us would be our website, yourhomediscovery.com. You can contact us right through that website. They have this cool little paper clip on there. It's amazing to me how helpful pictures are. And I come from the days of the Polaroid camera. I remember going out to job sites in the early days and you carried around a Polaroid one-step camera with you and some film. And that's, uh, it cost you around a dollar a picture to take them. Open up your smartphone and take a look at how many pictures you have taken just in the last month. How much would that have cost if you were using Polaroid film at a dollar a piece? Pictures are happening constantly. Social media, we're on social media. Hopefully you join us there. We're on Facebook, most of the social platforms. Do a search for us and join our family there. From the email box, charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. We've owned our home about four months. I'm ready to turn the air conditioner on. My husband says I can't turn it on until the service technician comes out and checks it. He says he heard this a while back, and we've both been renting for some time. Usually apartments. One time it was a house and they had a maintenance person that came by. I'm kind of speed reading through this email. The bottom line is the question sounds like we're getting to that air conditioner season and I don't want to turn it on until it's been checked and inspected by a service technician. We're close on having the right idea. And again, a lot of this depends on where you are in the country. Some markets don't require nearly as much cleaning as others. And in one market, one side of town may need to have a technician out four times a year to get the cottonwood seeds and all those kinds of things out of that outdoor air conditioning unit. Other parts of town, you might only need to clean it once a year at best. Other parts of the country... It may just be a light coating. The bottom line is we have to understand that with air conditioning systems, we're not making cold air. What we are doing is removing heat. And so by removing heat, the byproduct of that is cool air. But we're doing that by absorbing heat into a refrigerant and we're doing that inside in the A-coil, we're absorbing heat from the room, and we are taking that heat by way of the refrigerant, and we're carrying it outside to the outdoor unit, and we are releasing it to atmosphere. 
We're repressurizing our Freon, so to speak, and coming back for more. And it's just a circle. And all we're doing is moving heat from inside to outside. So that unit outdoors is pulling air across the fins or coils or whatever type of unit you have outside. It's pulling air across those to disperse that heat as it's released. And that heat is typically, for most units, going straight up. The fan is blowing it up. In order for that fan to successfully blow that heat up in the air, it has to be clean so that it can bring air in the sides. If we are incredibly plugged up, we're putting an extra stress on the fan because it has to work extra hard to pull enough air through those coils. So keeping those clean is very important. I got a text message from a friend a couple years ago in the middle of July, and he was out of town, and his phone went off that his temperature in his home was not dropping, and the unit was constantly running. And asked me if I would just go by and take a peek at it for him because he was out of town and concerned something was going on. When I went over there, I realized I should have brought a shovel and several buckets for all the stuff that was stuck in this outdoor unit. Some parts of town, some parts of the country, you don't have this problem as much. But if that outdoor unit is near a very dusty area, sometimes that can be lack of grass. Sometimes that can be a gravel road out in front. Another place that that you really have to watch these things is around cottonwood trees, obviously. If you're anywhere, I mean, there's some parts of the country where at certain times of the year, it almost looks like it snowed. If you get enough of those things shedding their cotton, they can be literally three, four inches deep. And you're walking through this stuff going, wow. Well, that outdoor unit that's sucking air in the sides to blow it out the top is sucking leaves, cottonwood, dust, everything else along the way, those things are typically getting stopped by the fins or coils as that air moves through and tries to help carry that heat away from the unit so the refrigerant can go back in, pick up more heat. If we have a heat pump, which many parts of the country, heat pumps are incredibly popular depending upon the cost per therm versus the cost per kilowatt hour on your energy dollars, you may find in a lot of cases it's less expensive to move heat from one place to another than it is to generate heat with either an electrical heating element in an electric furnace or a natural gas or propane gas furnace. So if we're going to move heat, well, let's think about this. As we talked about with the air conditioner, it also is moving heat. It's moving heat from indoors to outdoors. In the wintertime or spring or fall, when we need a little bit of heat inside, we can get that heat from outside. We simply take that refrigerant flow and just like your car in drive is air conditioning, we put it in reverse and we back up. We go the opposite direction. We go outdoors 
and absorb some heat, and we come inside and release that heat. That's the simplistic explanation. There's things like reversing valves, and there's more technical in the midst of it, but a heat pump basically reverses flow, takes that heat from outdoors, and brings it inside and releases it. The bottom line is, if this refrigerant is going to be successful at moving heat, whether it be in air conditioning mode from inside to outside or heat pump mode from outside to inside, we need to have the clean ability for those coils to allow all of the air that their space will provide through them. If it's packed up with dirt, mud, leaves, tree branches, cottonwood seeds, uh, the, 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 it's endless the number of things that can get stuck in there. We want to keep that clean. So once a year, it's a great idea to have an HVAC technician get his eyes on your equipment, not just to find out if it's clean or dirty. There's a lot more things that go into an air conditioning service call than just making sure that the unit is clean. They do things like check amp draws, they check contactors. They'll check the capacitor. There's, there's a lot of different things. You can sometimes prevent those holiday weekend breakdowns on your air conditioning. Because, you know, they never break down on Monday at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's always when you have a house full of people and hmm, no air conditioning. So we want to get a technician's eyes on it once a year. But going to the question... Do I have to wait until the technician has seen it to turn it on? The answer is typically no, because we want them to see it once a year. From that visual inspection, immediately they can almost tell you upon taking one peek at your surroundings, where you are in the country, and how your system has been surviving in that environment. They'll be able to tell you pretty quickly how often they need to be out. In that case, we don't have to wait to turn the air conditioning on the first time. We certainly, though, do want to have that technician come out at least once a year and check things out, make sure that everything is performing as it should. Of course, there may be an unexpected breakdown, but for the most part, those things can be caught during a service visit. Charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. If you have additional questions, I await your email. Stay tuned. Your Home Discovery continues straight ahead. Your Home Discovery now continues. Here's your host, Charlie Campbell. Thanks for staying with us here on Your Home Discovery. I am Charlie Campbell. Going through emails today, we have had quite a few over the last few weeks, a lot of different questions. It says on here, in a prior show, you talked about preparing for a move, and Annette was on the program and said that her list is changing. I want to know more about that changing list. Well, Annette Stahl joins us occasionally. She's a designer, a realtor, incredible at designing plans for new construction. She has this list of things that, you're supposed to do and in this order she has said multiple times over the years on this program that you should go through your home occasionally and you know and you're doing that spring cleaning 
She's always said her rule is if you haven't used it in six months, you probably want to consider getting rid of it. And she makes that sound so easy. Well, we had a program with her on here not very long ago, and she had a little mini meltdown because she herself is going through the exact thing she tells everyone else to do. And she's finding out it's not as easy as she thought. So she says the list is changing, but my guess is once she gets done with this move, she'll go right back to saying, well, I did it. (laughs) We're not going to talk about the stress level that she went through when she did it, but she did get through it. Charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. A question, it says, I have a drinking water system with a faucet beside my kitchen sink faucet, and I'm curious how often those filters should be changed. The changing of those filters is typically based on several things. How much are we rejecting? So what is the quality of the water going in before it's filtered? If we have super hard water that's feeding into that thing, we may have to change those filters more often than, say, a home with 12 grains hard water that's going through a water conditioner, water softener. Now we're down to less than one grain per gallon of hardness. We don't have a ton of chlorine. Pressures are another thing to consider. There's a lot of variables. And then how much water has run through it. With a reverse osmosis unit, there's a pre-filter, the membrane, and the post-filter. The pre and the post-filters are what's considered um, cartridge filtration. So the inorganics or the, the product that we're filtering out is retained in the media, and it lives there until you change the media. With the reverse osmosis membranes, those are typically what's called cross-flow filtration. So there's essentially two exits from one entrance. So our water is going into the reverse osmosis membrane. And then there is one spot where once the water has gone through the entire membrane, it pushes through much cleaner than it started, and it goes out in to be used through that faucet. The other side, there is a drain a smaller drain hole, and it is designed to carry away some of the particulate that we're stopping with that filter. So a a good quality RO membrane, if it's being fed with good quality water, soft water, can easily last two years or more. Again, it depends on the usage as well. It doesn't just matter what's going in but how much of what's going in is there? Are you the person that uses, fills up a water bottle every day and that's kind of the extent of it? Or do you fill up nine two-liter pitchers plus cook with it and you use it constantly? Based on the usage, based on the rejection rates, that's what's going to throttle those change-outs. Talk to the professional that's coming out and taking care of that system for you. It's a little more than just changing filters. We also need to sanitize the unit. We need to sanitize the the tubing that's coming off of that unit, and we can do all of that in one service visit. Charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. If you have additional questions, please let me know. Next out of the mailbag is about a roof leak 
And it says, we have a new composition shingle roof seven years ago. We're developing some moisture spots on the soffits. And it appears as if there might be a roof leak, but I'm not exactly certain there's no active dripping water. Here's the cool thing about the Your Home Discovery channel. When you when you go to yourhomediscovery.com and you click on Ask Charlie right there, there's this little paper clip and I can get images and you can send pictures. We were talking about that earlier in today's program. The pictures say an awful lot. And this particular picture, it appears to me, this isn't a roof leak. This is appearing to me its humidity is trapped. It doesn't appear that the soffit ventilation is open. It, it, you can tell from the photo, it looks like there's insulation kind of sticking out of it. And what we find happens in some parts of the country, we have blown in insulation in our attics. And when it's put in, the soffit area has a hole with a vent screwed to the bottom of the soffit. That area above it is opened up. Well, over the course of time, air is moving through that attic. And as it does, some of that insulation can fall back down against that soffit vent. A lot depends on how they retained that insulation to keep it back. Sometimes you'll see one by fours, one by sixes are put together and built a chase to hold the insulation back. I've seen cardboard used to hold that insulation back from the soffit vents. Depending upon what's up there, that may tell you the story. For this particular picture and what I wrote back via email was I recommended checking in the attic and seeing what's happening up there. The next picture I got back, it in fact was cardboard and it had broken and all that insulation fell right down into the soffit vents. So most of the entire run on the back side of the house was plugged up and not allowing any ventilation in. We have to think about hot, dry, humid temperatures. We need to remember that the key to a happy attic is insulation and ventilation. So if we're missing one or the other, we don't have a perfect system. You can have all the insulation in the world in your attic, but if you don't have the ventilation, not only could you have the soffits start staining liquid, which is what's occurring at the, the soffit vents here, you could also have premature aging on the roof decking because we have too much humidity trapped in that attic. It's important that we have that good balance. Without that, we're just kind of guessing. The second part of the question is, now that I've looked into this and I've seen this cardboard, we have hired a contractor who has come in and built a, a decent barrier to hold those back. He asked us if we had ever considered adding more insulation to the south end of our home because it appears it's only about six inches deep while the other end of the home it's almost 24 inches deep sounds to me like there's a lot of air traveling through this attic and that may be 
why we had the additional pressure against that cardboard and caused it to go. Not that cardboard was probably the right idea in the first place, but I digress. The recommendation would be based upon the area in which you live. If you have questions about how deep the insulation in your attic should be, charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. I'll get your location and we'll get specific based on where you are. Charlie at yourhomediscovery.com, a question about internet. Not the smartest when it comes to some of these technological things. I think y'all are kind of challenging me here. It says, we have a router in the living room and we are trying to hook up our ring doorbell and it is connected to the router in the basement. So apparently there are a couple of different routers. When And I'm a little bit familiar with Ring Doorbell. I had a very similar problem myself. As long as you are broadcasting on a 2.4 gigahertz, that's the one that you have to connect to with the Ring Doorbell. It doesn't like the 5 gigahertz Internet side. And why that is, hey, you'd have to ask somebody more technical on the Internet side than I am. Internet is an interesting topic, though, because it is incredible in my head how many home products are now connecting to the internet so they can send you an email and tell you you need to do something. There are water treatment systems that'll send you an email when it's time to add salt to your water softener. There are lighting when we can open our garage doors with the push of a button on our smartphones. Smart homes are really cool when you get into this. It's way too much technology for me though. I I struggle just a little bit with that. More helpful ways to build and improve your home sweet home are straight ahead. Stay tuned. Your home discovery now continues. Here's your host, Charlie Campbell. Thanks for staying tuned. Your home discovery. I am Charlie Campbell. Charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. Today we're going through a lot of the emailed questions that have come in. Several weeks ago, I heard a show with you having someone talk about Diablo tools and the cutting, the metal cutting wheels. I'm reading this email here. I guess I should have read this more ahead of time. Um, The metal cutting wheels, I am curious to know more because the gentleman said you could use a circular saw to cut metal, and I'm struggling to believe that. Well... I have to agree with this email's thought process because that's exactly where I was when I first looked at the Diablo saw blades. Diablo doesn't make any tools. The only thing that they make are the blades or the the cutting tools that go into the electric tools. So there are a lot of manufacturers of the electric tools. We had Milwaukee on the program. There's DeWalt. There's... There's a whole bunch of different manufacturers of tools. Diablo specializes in the cutting portion, the blades themselves. And in answer to this question, yes, there is a blade. I have myself cut through 5 sixteenths thick steel with a circular saw. And it, it still amazes me that you can do that, but very minimal Shavings, very minimal sparks, nothing like using an angle grinder to cut through metal. If you have questions, I would certainly 
point you to the Diablo website. They have all kinds of tech data based on exactly what you're cutting. In this particular email, I did write back and haven't gotten a response yet. I'm curious what you're cutting, what the thickness of it is, and how much of it you have to cut. The second part to that question was, aren't Diablo blades more expensive than the others? The, the thing you really have to look at when it comes to cost is cost per use. How many cuts are you going to get out of that Diablo blade versus how many cuts are you going to get out of some of the others? And I'm not saying that the other blades aren't great. I've talked to Diablo. I haven't talked to Lennox. Lennox, if you'd like to, yeah, Charlie at yourhomediscovery.com, shoot me an email. I'd love to learn more about your product. But when I was first told you can cut through metal with this circuit, I couldn't, I literally couldn't believe it. And the first thing that I cut was three-eighths all thread. And if you have ever cut all thread and then tried to put a nut on it, you know how much cleanup work there is after that to get the threads to a point you can thread the nut back on there after you've cut through it. I think more than the fact I could take this blade and cut through the all thread, the thing that was more shocking to me was the fact that I can put the nut, take the nut and thread it right on there. And above all, the coolest part to cutting metal with one of these blades yeah, there's minimal sparks. Yeah, it's not hot. That's the thing that, that just throws me. When you use, obviously, if you use a torch, if you use a angle grinder, if you use a plasma cutter, no matter how you're cutting steel, you're typic, typically, typically, where did I get that word? Typically, you're generating a lot of heat during that cut. What does heat do to a saw blade it kills it and if you build the saw blade correctly you don't have the heat and if you eliminate the heat you extend the life of the blade so back directly to the question isn't the blade more expensive than another if the blade is ten dollars and the competing blade from another manufacturer is six, and that $6 blade will get you six cuts, that's a dollar per cut. But if the $10 blade gets you 30 cuts, look at the money that you have saved. So we really need to start looking at how much is it per cut. That's really what makes everything really add up is how much per cut. That's a little tough to, to, do, to do quickly if you're in a hurry and trying to make a decision on which one to go with. But these all these manufacturers have websites with a lot of tech data. When you get into one of those and you have some questions that maybe get you a little confused, please shoot me an email, charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. Talking in general terms, eh, you know, it's all, it's all the highlights. But if you have specific questions, I'm cutting food-grade stainless that's this thick, and I need to do a this size cut this many times 
and here is the tool that I'm planning to use it use on it. Those are the technical specifics that we can get very detailed and we'll know exactly which product is going to be the most helpful to you. I was recently asked to help out at a really cool event called Build My Future. Not sure if you've heard about this or not. You can go check out their website, buildmyfuture.net, and it is basically an interactive, hands-on showcase for students to walk through a home show-type atmosphere with manufacturers and vendors that are not there to sell the kids anything. They're there to show typically high school students different aspects of a bunch of different trades, everything from electrical, mechanical, plumbing, roofing, carpentry, siding. Um, I I saw welding. Welding was one of the most popular topics as I was visiting with students the other day. The thing that I thought was really cool was some students were openly honest that they had no idea what they wanted to do. I think somewhere along the line, we lose a little bit of our honesty. If we're honest about it, there's less surprises. Other students, not that they aren't being honest, they've kind of already found what trips their trigger. I was speaking to a junior in high school who was telling me that he's very interested in HVAC. He's been going to some summer programs. And wording that he used tells me specifically he is really getting into this. When he was talking about HVAC, he was using standard industry jargon. He was telling me we had to pull a new line set when we were struggling a little bit to get the A-coil on top of the furnace. So, and he mentioned S and drive. So these are some technical terms that you wouldn't have known if you were just watching a guy fix an air conditioner, let's say. He was truly into this and did have a few specific questions and there were several HVAC companies right there to help him. There were electricians. I saw kids learning to take a multimeter to find out if the battery that they were using for their game is any good or not. And one kid said, you know, I bet I would have gone through a whole lot less batteries if I'd have known how to test them to see if there's any good or not. If there's four in the unit and it doesn't turn on right, I throw all four away and get four new batteries. Well, when mom and dad are buying the batteries, that's one thing. You're starting to buy them yourself. Well, hello. This, he was so amazed. He was like, really? And what we found in the past is that some of these devices that take four batteries when it's not coming on or says low battery, if you test the batteries out of four batteries, only one or two are below the minimum most of the time. Usually, at least one, maybe two, are still able to keep going. But prematurely, there have been some fail. There was also a lot of fun activities at this event. Um, The cabinet manufacturing company that was set up out there had several different cabinet building stations. And if the student visited at least three of those stations and worked on putting face frames together and learned about the cabinet boxes and how drawers are built, 
But it was really cool for anybody in the woodworking or anyone just in general to see that how cabinets are built. I often think before someone goes through a remodeling project, they should go through an event like this just to get kind of a 30,000-foot elevation of what's involved in some of these trades. Anyhow, if they visited at least three of these stations, cabinet building stations, then they were able to go over, take a buddy, and compete in belt sander races. Now, how much more fun can you have than plugging in a belt sander and having it shoot off through a 50 or 60 foot long course and see who wins. And it was obviously all about the response time for activating because these are identical belt sanders with identical electrical electrical power feeding them with the same discs. So the differential was in reaction time when the light turned green. Buildmyfuture.net. Stay tuned. Your home discovery continues straight ahead. Your home discovery now continues. Here's your host, Charlie Campbell. Thanks for staying with us on this edition of Your Home Discovery. I am Charlie Campbell, doing my best to help you through the perils of a renovation, a remodel, or a new construction experience that you may be going through. Maybe it's just something you're, something that you're contemplating doing. If you've got questions, shoot me an email. I'd love to visit with you, charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. From the email box, the next question out of the gate has to do with gates. And it says, I have a privacy fence, and when I push the gate latch and open the gate, it scrapes all across the cement. And I'm trying to figure out how, if this is, if fixing it is a simple thing. Well, there was no picture attached. I've written back, don't have a response on that one yet. I'm waiting for some photos. The thing we have to look at is the structural integrity necessary for the hinge point on these doors. So when we have a privacy fence and we make a door within it, we have an awful lot of weight. The wider the door and the taller the fence, the more weight that we have hanging on that hinging point. And it is possible, depending upon the age of this fence, if, if, if it's been there 30 years, it's very possible that there has been some deterioration settling. It's also possible that we have some ground heave I've seen some scenarios where a fence will drag the concrete three months out of the year. Our, our earth with the temperature differentials and temperature changes, we have a lot of expansion and contraction and ground heave based on moisture content, drier times versus wetter times. It's, it, there's a lot that goes into that. The highlights are our hinge point has to be very solid. More often than not, the post is typically fine, and if the fence is several years old, the most common failure location is the bolts that are holding the hinge onto the fence or holding the hinge onto the post. If they have loosened even a little bit, that entire hinge can slip just a little bit, and you won't notice it. What I would do is open that door, grab the handle, and lift slightly. 
and see what moves. You may notice a pivot point where the hinge is moving on its bolts. You may notice that the entire post and rest of fence connected to it lifts up two to three inches. That's probably where the issue is. Again, pictures are helpful. Charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. I would love to hear from you, and the pictures really help in answering the question. The next one is we have a 1930s home. The back porch has four 12 by 12 brick piers that are holding it up, and the entire porch seems to be settling. Do we need to replace those piers? Everything I know about foundations and concrete, I learned from a very wise concrete guy named Ben. And Ben always told me it took it 40 or 50 or 70 years to settle. So where it is, it's probably pretty happy with itself for the next 30 to 40 to 50 years. Let's leave it there. And and in my head, I, it wasn't adding up. I'm like, Ben, the, the point here is we've got to, we need raises up. If I leave it there, what did I solve? And he explained that you leave the 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 pier where it is, the, the, the supports, you raise the porch back up slightly, and then you shim between the porch and the pier with concrete or bricks. So this is not a do-it-yourself project. I would not recommend you go get the jack out of your car and try jacking up the back porch. These you really need uh, foundation specialists. Often those are concrete companies that have a foundation or repair division or may just be a foundation contractor. So for this particular email, I wrote back, I got the city and state, I connected them with two or three foundation experts in that area. If you're having settling problems, groundwater problems, a lot of times those can be solved quite easily if you get a foundation in specialist involved early on. The thing that harms foundations the most, we talk a lot about a couple of different times a year, but we should probably do it maybe even more often. In rainier seasons, in wetter areas, we really have to take a look at how our yard is handling that weather event. When a home is built, there is an overdig around that foundation that does not get machine compacted. You don't want a very heavy piece of equipment vibrating against a brand new basement wall or new foundation. So that overdig is put in so that we can get our concrete forms in, get all of our concrete poured. Once that's cured, we can unbolt the forms both on the inside and the outside of this new wall. And then get them out of the hole. So it's typically a three-foot to five-foot perimeter of the entire property when the basement walls were poured. That area is called an overdig. It does not get machine compacted heavily because we can't do that against new concrete. And the contractor is typically out of there within six months of filling that 
that hole. Natural compaction, depending upon the soil type and the amount of moisture that you get, could take a couple of three years before you get the complete natural compaction. And if we think about that, let's just make a mark on the foundation wall and say, well, we had the dirt piled to here. In two to three years, the dirt may drop six inches. And what you'll find is that when it rains, the water tends to go toward the foundation rather than being pitched away from the foundation. And we are often real quick to put planting areas in up against the foundation. And then we put things like mulch or decorative rock in. Whenever that settles, we typically just add more mulch. And I have seen instances on foundation problems where too much water against the foundation is what was causing the problem and dirt was brought in to raise that up all around the house. The only piece that was avoided was the planting area. And if you take a garden rake out into a planting area, whether it has little gravel or whether it has mulch or whatever you happen to be using as a, as a ground cover, rake that back and get to the actual dirt. And you may find that the soil level in that planting area is lower than the soil level outside it. That could tell you that over time someone has brought dirt in because getting the water to, to go away from our foundations makes a lot more sense than continuing to allow it to go right down into our foundation. Premature usage of our area-way drainage systems. Homes are built differently depending upon where they're at. There may be a sump pump involved. There may be just drain tile that is daylighted someplace. Again, just like we were talking about the saw blades earlier, there are a whole lot of different factors that go into how you answer a question like my foundation problem. Pictures of it is incredibly helpful. Our website, yourhomediscovery.com, great place for you to click on there, click Ask Charlie. You can put a description of the problem you're having. There's a paper clip to upload some photos of it. Then we just need to know where you are in the country. Where you are in the country directly affects the freeze-thaw scenario. So what you would do in Minnesota versus what you would do in San Antonio, Texas are completely different because of frost lines and how we see the potential for movement, the requirements for footings and foundations. So building codes are different all around the country, and that's primarily based on the municipality and the weather, the climate. So we need to make sure that we're adjusting for that. Charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. I'd love to hear from you. Love to hear the projects that you have in store, in your mind, in progress, or if there's one you're particularly proud of, you're already done with it, shoot me a picture. Would love to see it. Take care. Thanks for enjoying another edition of Your Home Discovery with Charlie Campbell, a presentation of CQH Ranch LLC, keeping everything around your home sweet home looking great. Broadcast nationally on AM and FM radio stations, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and more, plus easily found on most social media channels. 
Tune in again soon for more tips and ideas to keep your home sweet home looking great. Podcast available 24-7, yourhomediscovery.com.